done a lot of study for things in the EPIC class, and I'd like to share a little bit of that with you tonight. Uh, the way it works in EPIC is basically Wade and I take turns. Uh, we try to, to be topical in, in the EPIC class, and uh, the last time I taught, uh, late spring and in the summer, I, I studied, because I knew I needed to study it, uh, what the Bible says about pride. And at the end of that study, some of the conversation in, in the class, uh, I could tell they thought I was being kind of nitpicky with some of the conversations we were having in regards to that word, pride. And it made me think about the importance of accuracy in the English language. And so with the Sunday school class, I started out with that study of pride and ended thinking about the importance of accuracy in language. So tonight, I'm going to do it completely the other way and see how that works. But before we do that, let's pray and then we'll get started. Uh, Lord God, thank you for bringing us here tonight. Uh, Thank you for being a God of clarity, a God of certainty, and a God of grace. Uh, Thank you for all the people that are here this evening. In your name, amen. In our church, we love God's word. We we proclaim it every Sunday. Pastor proclaims it. Uh, We recognize the King James as the word of God, the perfectly preserved word of God. And, of course, Pastor has covered that many times. He's covered the history of the King James very well. Uh, And we know that God holds his word in the highest esteem. Uh, If you would... Turn with me to uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I'm going to quickly go through a few of these verses. I know we know them, but just to get started. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect thoroughly finished unto all good works. Uh, If you look at Psalm 1830, As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in Him. Uh, I'm just going to keep going. If you, You can turn with me if you want to Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Uh, Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And then uh, John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And I actually cut a whole bunch because I knew we could just keep going. Uh, And it's very clear that God holds his word in the highest esteem. And, of course, these are just some of the verses that demonstrate that. Now, as I get into this, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not claiming to have information that you don't have. I'm not claiming that I've got everything figured out. Uh, I am confident, though, it's the English teacher in me that found this interesting and led me to do this. So uh, I hope I can communicate it tonight in a way that will help you. Um, Many people in the world have accepted one of Satan's great lies, and that is that the King James Version is so filled with archaic words that it can't be understood and it can't possibly be God's preserved word. Uh, I know I hear often that no one talks that way anymore. Just FYI, 
No one talked that way back when it was written either. <laughs> but it was written that way. The solution to the trouble is to take the time to improve your own vocabulary and to take the time of careful study. When you're reading your Bible, don't just think you know what a word means. Take the time to look it up. And, I, and pastors said this before. Take the time to use Webster's 1828 dictionary so that we can know what the word really means. Uh, and it's even online now. You don't have to actually go out and find a, and it's a large, I thought about bringing it up here tonight just so it looked like I really studied hard to get ready, bring up a big heavy book, but uh, I just printed it out instead. Um, It's online. You can just punch in the word and blammo. You have the definition from Webster's 1828. Uh, If you think about it, that doesn't require an education, right? Moses was educated, but David wasn't. Daniel was educated. Elijah was not. Paul was educated. Peter was not. But they were all used by the Lord because they sought after God's truth and they loved his word and they they pursued it with all their heart. If you look at Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 5, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding, yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. writer, I'm sure most of you have heard of him, a man by the name of George Orwell, was a great mind and a great author, but a man who rejected Christianity. And he wrote an essay called Politics and the English Language. And he wrote this in 1946. And there were two major messages in this essay. One, it's him pointing out how people use language to further their own agenda. And two, how if enough of the English language is corrupted, we won't have the ability to think clearly anymore, uh, especially when it comes to certain topics. And so I wanted to read to you an excerpt from this, uh, for, again, from 1946. He was a very forward-thinking individual. And when there's a mind like this and a man like this, I, I'm, one of the first things I often think is how disappointing it is that he rejected Christ because he accomplished so much. He was such a great thinker, and I think about what more he could have done had he accepted the truth. So, from George Orwell's Politics and English Language. Now, it is clear that the decline of a language must ultimately have political and economic causes. It is not due simply to the bad influence of this or that individual writer, but an effect that that can become a cause, reinforcing the original cause, and producing the same effect in an intensified form, and so on indefinitely. A man may take to drink because he feels himself to be a failure and then fail all the more completely because he drinks. It is rather the same thing that is happening to the English language. It becomes ugly and inaccurate because our thoughts are foolish, but the slovenliness of our language makes it easier for us to have foolish thoughts. The point is that the process is reversible. Modern English, especially written English, is full of bad habits which spread by imitation and which can be avoided if one is willing to take the necessary trouble. 
If one gets rid of these habits, one can think more clearly. And to think clearly is a necessary first step toward political regeneration so that the fight against bad English is not frivolous and is not the exclusive concern of professional writers or English teachers. Uh, for me right now, it's at the end of the day. I'm so tired of hearing that one. Oh, my word. And everybody says, now, hopefully I've ruined it for you. You will go home and watch the news, watch sports talk, listen to it. All you're going to hear is people saying, at the end of the day, something, something, something. <laughs> it's just, again, that laziness. So, if we apply this, that essay, to and the, how the English language has changed, and then think about how Satan's lies continue to attack both our language and the Bible, you know, how long is it until people struggle to understand the gospel? Because the words for it are hard for them. How long is it before people believe they can't study the Bible on their own? Because the words are hard for them. It's almost, I'm going to say it, but I hesitate to say it, but I'm going to. I think we've probably already crossed that threshold for a good portion of the population. Uh, James Knox, who we know, uh, interestingly enough, had a lot to say about this. He even wrote a book called By Definition. And it has a lot to do with the importance of language and understanding the words of the Bible. And there's a section of the book I want to read to you tonight. Read to you tonight and I figured that it's already said really well. So there's no point in me trying to reword it or anything like that. Uh, it is a couple pages, so I hope you'll stick with me. Uh, it's from Appendix E. The Degeneration of the English Language. Much has been written about the fact that the English language reached its peak during the century in which the authorized version, he refers to the King James, of course, as the authorized version, was produced. Since that time, our language has degenerated in two notable ways. The meaning of words has been debased. The downward course of human devolution has pulled many words down from their lofty definitions into the mire of modern speech. And two, men have attempted to cover this degeneracy by attaching noble words and terms to ignoble things and actions. Let us take up the second of these matters first. Americans are so intent upon flattering themselves and exalting their positions that they can no longer call things by their right and proper names. What is mundane and common is renamed in order to sound valuable or impressive. And this, this paragraph right here is going to be a great segue to where I'm going to end in talking about pride. Henry is the modern American. His house trailer has become a mobile home, and the mobile home has become manufactured housing. In front of the manufactured house is not a used car, but a pre-owned vehicle. At the curb are not garbage cans, but waste receptacles. These have not been put out for the trash collector or garbage man, but have been readied for retrieval by the sanitation engineer. Not to be hauled to the dump, but to be transferred to the sanitary landfill. Out of the window comes not the smell of coffee, but the aroma of java or espresso. Sitting at the table is Henry. He is not a salesman, but a marketing representative. If he has one more good week, he can earn the title of merchandising associate. It's funny because it's true. <laughs> Though he works dirt cheap, he doesn't know it, for he's told he is earning above the minimum wage. And every other Friday, his, he receives not pay, but compensation. The company takes 5% of his paycheck and deposits it in their bank accounts. But Henry doesn't mind, for he has been told this makes him a corporate partner. 
Today, Henry has to leave work early and go to the doctor's office, but this routine trip has been upgraded to a visit to the wellness center. To make sure he is not late, he looks at his timepiece, formerly known as a watch. Upon arrival, he's greeted by a receptionist. This is an attractive female with false hair color, false eyelashes, and false fingernails, who has been through six weeks of psychological training to enable her to convince Henry that this business thrives on honesty. The customer, upgraded to patient, has to prepare the doctor, I'm sorry, the healthcare professional, for their visit. So Henry fills out a questionnaire, which is now known as a personal profile data sheet, not with a pen, but with a writing instrument. This visit over, Henry meets his domestic partner for a dining experience. This was once known as meeting your, li- your wife for supper. The service is terrible. This is not because the waiter is a stupid teenager, but because the server is an academically challenged adolescent. <laughs> At the end of the meal, his wife shames him into leaving an unearned, unearned, don't say tip, gratuity. The next day, Henry must take a trip. He will fly not in a plane, but on an airliner. There will be no stewardesses, but flight attendants. Before the flight, they will review safety procedures, a cute code name for crash preparation. Should this crash, read force landing, take take place at sea, it will not be a ditching, but a water landing. One airline's annual report actually described a plane crash as an involuntary conversion of a 727. Sela. He wrote that there. (laughs) Once airborne, Henry will not be offered a plastic cup half filled with soda, which was donated for advertising purposes, but a complimentary in-flight beverage service. This is offered with a smile and .04 ounces of peanuts because he's not a customer, but a valued guest. The business trip doesn't turn out too well, and Henry loses his employment opportunity. This is not as bad as it used to be, for he was not fired, but he simply had his employment terminated. This was not because of poor sales, but due to an account shortfall. He goes home depressed and turns on the television. He watches a professional reader called a news anchor try to sound concerned as he reports on urban unrest. This used to be known as a race riot. The anchor, I guess, he keeps the news from floating away with the tide, also reports that the Defense Department, which was once the Department of War, has begun a peacekeeping campaign, formerly known as a war, by suppressing a target, which used to be called killing people. Then a chief meteorologist, that's a weather reader, reports on rainfall, now known as precipitation. It is obvious this man has been to the hairstyling salon, once known as a barber shop. Next comes the sportscaster. How does one cast sports? Who is the same as the newsreader, only he shouts? <laughs> Henry watches all this in a semi-daze, convinced he is learning what's going on in the world. So much I want to say to that. After a few days of searching for a job, i.e. pursuing employment opportunities, Henry is forced to relocate, formerly known as move. In the next county, he takes a job as a janitor. This was humiliating until someone told him he was actually a custodial engineer. However, he soon falls in with the wrong crowd and begins using cocaine. In the modern vernacular, he becomes the victim of a controlled substance. Henry is so distraught, he takes his life. I wanted to pause here. I know it got real dark real fast. I know. Uh, I wanted to pause here. I wanted to share with you as a teacher. Again, one of the reasons that I, I felt moved to share this with you. We teachers in the public school system are being retrained on how to say things. And when it comes to drug abuse now, we have to approach it as a disease. 
Now, obviously addiction is a disease. I'm not going to get into all that, the weeds with that. But they, the way we're supposed to approach it is taking the choice factor away from the person who has got into that addiction. To me, the even more troubling one is suicide. We are no longer allowed... I ignore that, but we're no longer allowed to say that someone committed suicide. It is now death by suicide. So again, it, it almost it's taking the responsibility away from the person who committed the act. I'll go on. He is taken to the undertaker. Oh no, that's too graphic. He is taken to the mortician. No, that's still much too plain. He's taken to the funeral home where nobody lives and prepared for internment, once called burial, by a perpetual care counselor. Does that sound about right, Eric? The body will be laid to rest, formerly buried, in a memorial garden, once known as a graveyard. This makes everyone feel better. At the funeral, some nice words are spoken, not by the preacher, but by a man of God. This is the degeneration of language. Words are robbed of their meanings as men seek to make vain and empty lives significant by elevating the normal to the desirable and thus perverting the language. No thinking man could possibly have any confidence in a Bible written by and for modern man in the language of modern man. This is a generation, generation which has no reverence for words, their meanings, or their usage. I'm quickly going to touch on his other point. Here, uh, I won't read nearly as long. But again, I, I didn't really find, figure out a way to say it any better, so, unless I have to remember. The other way in which the language has degenerated is through the fall of words from the nobility of their original meanings into the base and improper use made of them by modern man. Of those English words which have changed their meaning since 1611, all have taken a turn for the worse. We never find a word acquiring a higher meaning. A few examples. Prevent is a good Bible word. It means to proceed or go before, yet because whenever one man got ahead of another, it was generally to his own advantage and to the hindrance or hurt of the other. The word is taken on the lower meaning of to stop someone or something from going forward. Charity is a beautiful word taken from the old French, which means dearness. The word is used in the authorized version for the particular love between members of the body of Christ. Charity is never used in the context of unbelievers. Because man has sunk into a mercenary spirit and would rather throw a few dollars at someone's need than bear his burden, charity has been limited to the realm of the collection and distribution of money. An apology once stood for a, de for a defense, but because man's defenses of himself are usually so poor, the word has come to mean, excuse me, please. I was challenged when I was a young man being taught the difference between an apology and forgiveness. And it's something that has stuck with me forever. And it, it's a biblical principle, but there's no one verse to turn to for it. The idea that when you tell someone you're sorry, the reaction is always, oh, it's okay. You're forcing that defense upon them. And their reaction is almost always the same. Oh, it's all right. Oh, don't worry about it. But when you are genuinely asking for forgiveness, it completely changes the situation. And now... You're giving the other person an option as to whether or not to forgive you. Was... Lastly, the word damn is a clean word and a noble biblical term. 
It's what God will do to all those who reject his son and the Lord Jesus Christ. By reducing this word to common slang, Satan has taken the stinging force. Satan has taken the stinging force out of the gospel. No honest Christian would embrace a version of the Bible set in the vernacular of the present age. Our language has followed our society down into the gutter. Let us come out from among them and be separate. If we must learn some new words and gain a proper education and grammar in order to read the book of books produced at a time when our language was at its peak, let us do so. May we climb the heights in pursuit of absolute truth rather than sit carelessly in the depths of modern relativity. I hope that didn't bore you too much. <laughs> um, so that was where I ended up at the end of the study we did in Epic on pride. And so I'd like to now shift to that a little bit because my eyes were opened to how the world, through the lies of Satan really, has completely changed the, the idea of pride, being proud of something. Uh, in, in our society, there's that saying, pride comes before a fall. We've all heard it many, many times, right? But if you actually go to the Bible on this one, go to uh, Proverbs sixteen eighteen, and we'll see what God actually has to say about what happens with pride. Should be no surprise that the world has watered it down. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goeth before destruction, and in haughty spirit before a fall. So they kind of left out an important part there. Your pride leads you to destruction. Uh, when I was when I was looking looking these references up for for pride and and for proud in the Bible, if my research is correct, the word pride is used forty six times. 43 in the Old Testament, 3 in the New Testament. I thought it was interesting, the imbalance there. And then proud is used 56 times, 50 in the Old Testament, 6 in the New Testament. And I could not find a single one where it was used in a positive way. Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life. And God never even says he was proud of what Jesus accomplished. We don't have to turn to all of these because they all basically say the same thing. Matthew 3.17, Matthew 17.5, Mark 1.11, and 2 Peter 1.17, all at the end of the verse say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's as good as it got. In Webster's 1828 Dictionary, Pride is defined as inordinate self-esteem, an unreasonable conceit of one's own superiority in talents, beauty, wealth, accomplishments, rank, or elevation in office, which manifests itself in lofty airs, distance, reserve, and often in contempt of others. And it goes on with several more, none of them good. Proud, having inordinate self-esteem, possessing a high or unreasonable conceit of his, one's own excellence, either of body or mind. A man may be proud of his person, of his talents, or of his 
of his accomplishments or of his achievements. He may be proud of anything to which he bears some relation. He may be proud of his country, his government. It goes on. It lists several things. His religion, his church. He conceives that anything excellent or valuable in which he has a share or to which he stands related contributes to his own importance. And this conception exalts his opinion of himself. Arrogant, haughty. A few more definitions there from Webster's 1828 for pride. So, uh, just for a few more minutes, uh, if you would turn to Romans 1. We're going to, I'd like to show you a, a few of the things the Bible says about pride. And how the world, our culture, has completely perverted the biblical understanding of pride. Look at Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. One of the great things about our, our faith is that we're saved by the grace of God and I was a lost sinner and now I'm a saved sinner but I'm still a sinner for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath showed it unto them men are not right God is right. And when men's ways don't match God's ways, God is right. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians one twenty-five. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Uh, I should have told you to keep your place in Romans. I'm sorry. We're going right back to where we were. Uh, one, Romans one twenty one. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Everyone could know God if they wanted to, especially in today's day and age. We're more connected than ever, more access to things than ever. Everyone could have a relationship with God if they wanted to. But the thing is, if if they wanted to, people would prefer to give themselves the glory. Skip ahead to verses 28 through 32. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers. These are all awful, terrible things. Backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, Oh, and then right smack in the middle of it. Proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. It lists a lot of awful things that will never, thankfully, never apply to any of us. But then right in the middle of it, something that applies to all of us being proud turn to job 33 
Job 33, uh, verse 14. For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth not. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men and slumberings upon the bed, then he openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction, that he may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from, from man. I love this because to me it sounds like the only time we're not proud is when we're sleeping. Think about Sundays. Sundays for us is as good as it gets. We get dressed up. We go to church. Some of us voluntarily. And we're here to worship God. Some of us volunteer our time. But we sit and we say, oh, that's not me. I don't need that. Oh, look at those people. So glad I'm not like that. So even when we're in church and we're supposed to be worshiping God, there's still something in us that says we should get some of the glory. I've got it figured out. I was here on time. Right? It's just there. It's just a part of us. Look at, uh, stay in Job, turn to 41. Chapter 41. In verse 1, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? I'm setting something up here. If you take the time, you can turn to Isaiah 27. We won't for the sake of time, but you can study this out. You can see very clearly that the Leviathan being referred to here is Satan, it's the devil. Uh, so turn to verse 34. The he here is still talking about Satan. Verse 34, he beholdeth all high things. He is king over all the children of pride. So in that moment where we're proud of something that we've accomplished, where we're very, so, we're so very, very proud of what we've done. If we go by Job 34, Satan is our king. I'm in church, singing the songs, following along in my Bible. But because I'm sitting there being so pleased with myself, I've allowed Satan to become my king while sitting in church. If you think about Satan, he was created to be beautiful, like all of you. Right? If ever he was full of wisdom, his voice was music. This is all in Ezekiel, right? Uh, Satan was waiting in the garden for Adam and Eve. And if ever there was someone to be proud, it would, Satan would make sense. He was created near perfection. The, be- the beauty and the glory he was, the position he was given. Now think about where we are in our culture. We don't have to be beautiful to be proud. Look at Facebook, Instagram, all those things, right? People, the filters and the pictures and sharing them with the world, they're so pleased with the way they look. And we've seen some of those pictures and we know better. And they circulate the world. 
You don't have to be wise to be proud. I have students in my class every year that can't read. 15 years old and they can't read, but they they don't struggle with self-esteem. And they think they should be making decisions. And they can't even read. And they've made it through nine years of school. Uh, YouTube is filled with people waiting for you know, the producer to find them, to make the, the next big hit. And so they're going to put them, their, their mixtape on the YouTube and just waiting to be discovered. And then if you've listened to any of it, you know they'll never be discovered. American Idol is a great example. There's a reason we like watching that show. Not for when they, all the good singers are on there, but for when all the terrible singers are on there. And then they get told they're terrible, and they can't fathom that they're terrible. Because someone at some point, probably in that first round of judging, said, you're really good. We're sending you on to the next round. And they go, oh, you know. And, and then they get to the judges and they get mocked and they're in tears and they're, they're, they're shocked. They're, they're offended. I mean, you name it. We've seen, if you've watched the show, you've seen it. it. They can't believe it. All it took was that one compliment to puff them up for them, for them to be proud in, in what great singers they were. People don't work, pay bills. They're proud, Right. People who don't finish school are proud. People who have never done anything to help someone are proud. Satan had every reason to be proud, but he was a creation of God just like the rest of us. And he should not have glorified in, in himself. He should have just gloried in God. Satan wanted the things of God, but not glory to God in return. Sound like anyone you know? Churches are filled with all types of successful people, but there's no better, they're no better off than the rest of the world if God doesn't get the glory. Church just becomes one more place for people to go to to brag about themselves. Uh, Psalm 73, let's look at that one. Psalm 73, verse 6. Therefore, pride compasseth them about as a change. Chain, violence covereth them as a garment. People wear their pride like jewelry. We watch TV to see people glory in themselves. The number of shows that exist simply so we can watch the rich person, the celebrities. Some of these people, I think they're just famous for being famous. And we watch shows about them and with them. can, can we just do things as Jesus did? Of course we can. We just want to make sure we, everybody knows that we did it. I've got about three hours worth of stuff probably, so I will uh, do the last page. So, believe me, I could go on. Uh, let's go to Proverbs 13.10. Proverbs 
told a couple of people when I was doing this study that I, this is this is where I live right now. Proverbs thirteen ten. Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well advised is wisdom. The pastor always says all means all, and that's all that all means. And I feel like only is another one of those words. Only it means there's there's one. Only by pride cometh contention. And if you think of a contentious relationship or a difficult, angry conversation you've had with someone, I think we could probably be honest and say pride had played a part in that. But the good news is God has given us grace, and God has more grace than we could ever use. Go to James 4. James chapter 4 and verse 5. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Grace of God will counter our pride. His grace is endless, and he gives it endlessly. He has more grace than I have pride. So there's no reason to live in opposition to God because he has more grace. Verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the desire to make Satan your king. God says be subject to God and the devil will leave. You don't even have to fight him. Verse 8, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Our problem, and pastor has taught on this more than once, our problem is the old man versus the new man. We are double-minded. We want it our way. We want the praise. But instead, we know we need to draw nigh to God over and over. There's no point that we arrive. We don't just draw close to God one time, and that solves our problem. It has to be something that we do over and over, renewing our minds over and over. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Even after seeing what the Bible said about pride, I I still struggle with it, and I know I will still struggle with it, especially since it's the spirit of this age. To be proud of the job that you do, to be proud of your children, take pride in your work. Just... Last night with my disciple, the, uh, the lesson we were in touched on, on pride. And I was reminded that humility is the opposite of pride. And biblical humility is total dependence on God. I hope this was I hope this was a help for you. Um, I studied this because I knew I needed it, and in, and in doing so, I was I was very excited to share it with the Sunday school class. And, and I hope I hope I've communicated it well enough for you tonight that uh, at least something in here was able to help you. Uh, let's pray, Lord God. Thank you for the opportunity to be here this evening. Thank you for giving me uh, words to, to communicate this evening.